Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our, our event on the Irish short story uh, with three writers who have published new collections. Very much looking forward to this evening's discussion and reading and opportunity to interact with new work uh, in this genre. Uh, we're, we're delighted to be hosting this event in the Moore Institute. My, my name is Daniel Carey. I'm director of the Moore Institute at NUI Galway. And this is in fact the second of three events uh, in association with the Arts Council, NUI Galway writer in residence, Tanya Farrelly, who you will notice is actually a participant in the event this evening. Um, she in fact was, was, uh, was the convener of our first event and we have one next week, same time next week um, on experimental writing uh, going on in Ireland. Very much looking forward to that too. Um, this event and series as a whole is, is an association between uh, the School of English and Creative Arts at NUI Galway and the Moore Institute. And I want to thank uh, John Kenny and Mike McCormick uh, for, for, for their involvement and inspiration. And also to thank you, Matthew, thank Matthew Garrity, who's uh, working things behind the scenes for us. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to, to Mike McCormick. And uh, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, great to be here this evening. Uh, great to be here on the on the first night of, of uh, first night of December. Uh, this is what this is All Souls Night, isn't it? Or this is uh, All Saints Day. Sorry, All Saints Day. I keep getting the two of them mixed up, and I should note uh, we're here at the beginning of um, uh, here at the beginning of Advent, and so there's something right and fitting about the fact that we have three books of short stories here to uh, launch tonight. Um, we have uh, Tanya Farley, uh, whom, we, whom we know for, as our NUIG, uh, NUI Galway writer in residence with her book, Nobody Needs to Know, David Butler with his book, Fugitive, and Rosemary Jenkinson with Marching Season. Welcome to you all and uh, congratulations to you all. And uh, we wish you luck with the with the um with all with uh, these three wonderful collections um i'm going to start and talking to to rosemary because as we reflected there and just before we came on uh we've never met uh, myself and rosemary have never met or spoken before and that and um and when i was going and when i was looking up rosemary's uh, bibliography and her history as a, as, as a writer and that it's very taken with how she's uh, on one hand, uh, Rosemary, uh, a distinguished playwright. And on the other hand, there is um, this long commitment to the short story, which is now eventuated in this collection tonight. But you are five collections deep, five collections of short stories deep. Um, that's a serious commitment. I can't think of anyone else of, uh, you're the same generation as myself, and I can't think of anyone else of, of, of my generation who has who has been that devoted, uh, who has worked that long and deeply in the in the, the, the mine of the short story in that. Yeah, I mean, I always, I, I like to be prolific, both in plays and short stories, and that's because it's the one thing that I can control, Mike. Like, uh, other people can say it's good or it's bad, but the one thing I know that I keep producing so that it's kind of, it's a statement in itself to keep producing. And particularly it's a lonely furrow, the short story, and it is uh, regarded as a training ground for the novel. Very, yeah, I suppose that's the main thing. But um, yeah, I, I 
did my first short story, I think it was 1997. Uh, so it predates the plays because the plays weren't yeah. sort of till, till 2004 was my first play. So it's, you know, so it is my first love. And uh, it isn't always easy to get them published. But um, yeah, I think that doesn't really matter. I think, yeah, it is. A, it's an art form in itself and it should be much more appreciated than it is. It strikes me, as you say there, there as well, too many people are inclined to see it and touching on a theme that you yourself have brought up, outside pressures tend to, to want to push short story writers towards the writing of a novel, but they would seem to me to be a pleasing stubbornness in your own, uh, in your own <laughs> insistence on going with five collections of, of, of short stories. Yeah, it's, it's completely aren't disobedience for for what people think you should be doing totally and um i think yeah um with this short story also it has recently there's no reason for me to give up the short story because there are more novelists moving into short story writing i mean i'm thinking of lucy caldwell for for instance who started as a novelist and then moved in you know so so they're actually jumping on the short story bandwagon novelists are. So uh, I was here first. I'd just like to stake my claim. It's like putting a, a flag on the mountain of the short story. And so, yeah, I'm very proud to have been there since 1997. Yes. So I'm not on trend. It's on trend now, but yeah, to predate that special. Yeah. Sorry, you, so you're saying this back back in 1997 was was when you when you cut your teeth on that, yeah? Is yeah. It, that would be about both of us about the same time in that. And um, the world wasn't quite so hospitable to short stories back then, were they? It wasn't, but it's funny because I was in Newcastle upon Tyne and I got on a course with a brilliant short story writer, uh, Irish writer, London Irish, really, and it was Bridget O'Connor who oh, was amazing. So God rest her, yeah. God yeah. rest her, yeah. She died so young and had so much talent in the short story. And so I was lucky enough to actually, that really put me on my path with a short story. So there you go. You see, even throughout the 90s where the short story wasn't really popular, it was A.L. Kennedy and the likes who were big short story writers, but it wasn't that popular. But she, yeah, I was lucky to meet one. If I'd met a novelist, perhaps I would have been down the novel path. She was, um, Bridget O'Connor was quite a compelling presence, all right, back then. Uh, um, what, what, what was the name of the, that collection? Was it Here Comes John or was that, is, is that what it's called? Yeah, Here Comes John was, yeah, was one of them. Yeah, there were two. Um, oh, yeah, I can't remember the other, but I got both. I was at her book launch and everything. So it was, yeah, they're, they're really good, really top yeah. quality, very modern. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard so many people praise that collection and that. So when, and when you were writing yourself and that, uh, what, sort of, what were your exemplars that you looked at and, and what were the ones that guided you and what was, what, what was the ones that you said, oh, maybe something like that and, or something you say, no, I definitely don't want to do anything like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, I loved, and I still do, I still go, it's like a touchstone for me and it's Tommy Yanovitz, Slaves of New York, which was a, a brilliant uh, collection in the 80s. Uh, it was the first time I actually read and yeah, about New York fashion designers, the modernity of that, and it just totally sang out to me. And it was about, relation, you know, those difficult relationships with men 
which is also something very close to my heart. And uh, so that kind of got me on that. But there were, there were so many other brilliant shows. Bruno Schultz was, is one of my favorite. Street of uh, Crocodiles, yeah. Streets yeah. of Crocodiles, I mean, it's so beautiful. Uh, so I love lyrical short stories as well as ultra hip modern. So I kind of veer between the two, I think myself. And, and I love, I always love the Irish traditional short story and the um, McGahern collected stories, a couple of Mary Levens, so, and William Trevor. So I work, you know, I was, but I, I don't want to write really that style now because I find it old fashioned, but I still, I can appreciate a lot of the qualities and I, I have stolen some of those qualities. Yeah, it, it, we, yeah, as short story writers, we can, or as writers, we, we have no, we have no bother saying that, yeah, I love some of what you do here, but I wouldn't be, I'm not that keen on, on, on other parts of what you do. She's, you have me really thrown there now with Tama Janowitz. Uh, that's a name from the past. I, I, how did you get Tama Janowitz to translate to Belfast for you? In that? <laughs> it's easy because uh, that kind of literary world is kind of, she was a kind of failed, um, in this book of short stories, she's a failed fashion designer. So it's very easy to be a failed writer in Belfast when there's not that many opportunities anyway. So I kind of, and also it is an urban, you know, Belfast, is, it has its hip side. I mean, it is kind of cool. And um, yeah, and also, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's very easy to do that because it, it's just that sort of um, whole striving ambitiousness within Belfast yeah. that I can, yeah. This, I think there's about four or five years, Rosemary, between your last collection, Aphrodite's Kiss and Further Stories, and this uh, this uh, book, Marching Season. Um, are they of a piece with, with each other? Have they have they developed and moved? Has you has Marching Season moved on, or or is it is it? Um, uh, I, have you still found Belfast and, and and its environs to be a really fruitful ground and a really and a really kind of generative place for your work? In that? I have. I mean, I, I used a lot. I taught abroad a lot, so I've used a lot of that. You know, um, uh, yeah, foreign stories. So I always pepper that, but the core of it is Belfast. And actually, I've done a lot since I did Aphrodite's Kiss. Then I did Catholic Boy two years later. Then I did. Um, uh lifestyle choice 10 milligrams two years later and then now a year and a half i've got this one so it's actually in the very very short space of time i've done four collections so yeah it's been belfast is is totally yeah it's a, a total inspiration because also i get the past i get the past of the gunmen and the trouble uh and also i chart it as that sort of modern bar you know bar hopping kind of uh millennial or yeah. millennial city so yeah so i've got there's two aspects to belfast a real haunted past and a real thriving present so that yeah drives my work thanks for that uh rosemary i'm going to come back to you uh, again because because uh, you raised some questions there but i just want to don't want to leave anyone out in the cold for too long and mm -hmm. i want to move on to to david david it's good to david butler good to good to see you Delighted to be here, Mike. How are you? Um, David is a is a, a man whose work I know 
mainly through his poetry and his playwriting. And he, he, he reminded me there uh, just before I came on that he is also a um, he's also a novelist and that. But this is uh, this is your second uh, collection, David, and that. Yeah, and um, this is your second collection. And uh, you you've spoken about how this collection even though it's it's only eight years since your last collection some of these stories go back to 2002 yeah um it might make sense if i if i say how i came to the short story because um i like like a lot of people since my late teenage years i've been writing very bad poetry sprouting bad poetry like acne as i often think and also attempting novels and that was my thing for about 20 years and that I kept trying to do and I got the opportunity to go back to college when I was in the UK in the 90s um, my original degree was engineering uh, mechanical engineering so I didn't have any literary background at all except for my own interest and I took the opportunity to uh, to study Latin American studies which is a four-year degree you spend a year in Latin America but um, as my major in that, I took Latin American fiction, which is really my grounding in, in literature. And I was blown away by Latin American short stories, uh, in particular, your friend Borges, uh, Ficciones and El Jardín de los Senderos de Bifurcan. Then there was Julio Cortázar. And my own favorite was um, Rolfo. Rolf was a fascinating character. He only wrote ever one novel, Pedro Paramo, and one book of short stories, uh, Jano and Jamas, and that's it. And then he just never wrote again. He always said, I'm going to write, I'm going to write. And um, he, he actually became a tire salesman. But he had this remarkable book of uh, short stories set around the Mexican Revolution, and they're very dialogue heavy, they're very voice heavy. But what fascinated me, I mean, I was now in my 30s and I never tried to write a short story, but I was very familiar with the form. And it came to me that the reason I was so familiar is because for the leaving cert, we had done Skuskeilta by O'Connor in Irish, and we'd done Maupassant, the short stories in French. So it was, it was actually without me realizing it, it was a very familiar form to me. And I suppose going back to Intercert, we'd done Exploring English Book Three with, you know, those sort of short stories. And at the time, I was getting very interested in drama as well, in acting. And it struck me that the short story was a way one could play around with voice in a way that one wouldn't in a novel. I've never seen a short story as an apprenticeship for a novel ever. But it struck me that there were certain similarities between, say, a dramatic monologue and a short story in that a single voice might, you know, incorporate it in a... 20 minute piece as one might put up on on stage as a dramatic monologue and i started playing around with the form and um my first real successes in getting published besides poetry happened soon after that um i had a story that won the uh maria edgeworth it was called no greater love and that became the basis for the 2013 collection 10 years later and had a story uh, accepted in the Sting Fly called Dubliner, which I'd set aside and just left there. And it hit me then when this collection was coming out, why? Why did I pass over that? <laughs> and I dusted it off. And there were one or two early stories that I actually went back to. And without changing them that much, there was another one that had um, also won the Maria Edgeworth, but I'd, I'd never published it. I thought, um, 
I'll include the full spread of 20 years of writing short stories in this collection. I mean, you know, it, it, it was eight years as my last collection. Who knows what the eight years is my next one. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give it the full range. And it also has a full range of length. There's everything from just under a thousand words to 15,000 words, you know. So um, it's quite a Catholic collection, I suppose, to put it that way. Small C Catholic. Yeah, the, the 15,000 word short story in that, that's, uh, that's uh, you're not going to go anywhere with regards competition or journal with a story of that length and that. Uh, so uh, the, yeah. it never it never threatened or wished to become a novel or anything like that, no? I'm also not going to threaten to read it out tonight, though. No. Uh, it, <laughs> uh, it, it very soon got published, funny enough, in an American publication, um, Seventh Circle. They, they just loved it and accepted it and published it. But it was going nowhere in terms of competitions. Um, and did, does that does that have a, a a particular devotion to uh to long form short stories if it, if it, if it's going to publish 15000 words um uh, uh i i just knew that they had published longer ones yeah, but it, yeah. it doesn't particularly i mean mine was the only long story in that particular edition that came out that year so it, it i mean there, there there was one called um something like long story, short story or something like that. That was specifically for longer stories, but this one wasn't, it was just one I happened to come across. But I have found that um, like when I was writing in the nineties, there were very few uh, fora to put out short stories in. And in Ireland in particular, they were slightly controlled by the figure of David Marcus. It's become hugely more possible to get stories out there and part of that is the proliferation of smaller presses really to take a chance. But part of it is because of the proliferation of um, festivals, a lot of which will have a competition attached. And it's not going to be a novel competition. It's going to be a short story competition. Uh, and then online events are readings. Again, a short story will fit. So I think in the last 20 years, there's a great possibility that within a month or two of writing a short story, it will either appear somewhere or have be shortened somewhere or you might read it somewhere. So you do have um, you've let it, it's less time sitting there on your hard drive as a novel. A novel might be there. You might have started eight years ago and it might still be on your hard drive and no, no one's ever seen it. So there, there is that, that's fascinating for me, I suppose. It, it, there, ver there very definitely is a, a, a much more hospitable ecology of journals and competitions out there than there was uh, back when myself and Rosemary would have, would have debuted in that. It's, it's, sure, um, yeah, of course. It's, it's a lot more flahul, it's a lot more generous uh, uh, now at the moment. David, I, I, I draw you back to the, the to your own kind of, draw you back to your own uh, Latin American uh, e experience because yeah. um, I, I, I don't know, we, I encountered the Latin American short story in my early twenties, and and it kind of blew the head off me as yeah, well. The, yeah, the, the whole the whole Borges thing, the Cortatar thing, um, and those two in particular, and um, and I, I actually didn't know that Rolfo, or I might have known and completely forgot that he had written a book of short stories in that, um, because I, I know the novel uh, uh, quite well. Um, how did how did that um, did that influence your, your work as a short story writer in that did it did it did the colors and the, did the colors and the substance and uh, and themes and 
and uh, the lushness of that did that leak into your own work did that come over and color um, your own work I, I think it did very much uh but again a lot of it is down to voice i mean, I, I was fortunate in in that um i was able to read all those in their language but also their language of their country i mean an argentinian writer doesn't write as a mexican writer does and they don't write as a peruvian writer does and because we were doing the four-year course of the history and so forth and the different kinds of languages you'd be very aware of uh for example how um a mestizo or an indian would be presented in latin american fiction in the way they speak oh. and i became i became fascinated with voice and what one could do with that now, Borges and Cortázar did totally open my mind um, to a different kind of writing, which I think a lot of other people came to through uh, Bartolome or Calvino or somebody like that or Umberto Eco. And something playful, ludic, yeah. Something playful, but also something very, um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, it's almost paraliterature somewhere sometimes. Like Borges always said he was too lazy to write a novel, so therefore he'd write the notes on a novel that has never been written. Now, I know, I know he's a very playful figure. Yeah, um, yeah. It's something that I haven't particularly tried because I haven't ever tried it successfully, <laughs> to put it that way. Uh, but it is something that interests me very much. And um, I wonder if it's an area that, that, that you'd write uh, very well in, I, I think, you know. To, to yeah, it, uh, although that, that was of an age as well. I'm not so sure. I know the stories you're referring to. I'm not so sure that I would go back and, and okay. do that thing now. I wonder, is it, I wonder, has that was that of an age and a time and that that uh, that um, are are we too long in the tooth for that sort of thing now well there's also the fashion thing because even if you're looking at the big novels of the boom as it was called the latin american boom the garcia marquez and fuentes and people like that um the magical realism thing that had its time as well i think in, in the 60s in the latin america but it's the 70s and maybe early 80s it kind of ran its course and it became almost a parody of itself after a while and i think yeah. the same thing happens in fashions in the short story like in the 80s and 90s there was a big loosening up in the united states you know of um the as i say david bartholomew people like that trying to write in a different way um even somebody like um coover or cheever or those sort of people moving away from realism yeah. or barth for example exploring a different thing and, and it was great and it's not that it's it's not that it's doesn't have its place but the spotlight stays and then moves and things can look very old-fashioned very fast after that yeah we see writers we see writers re reputation ebb and fall there was a time when i you know there's a time when i fell out of love with borges and that now i find myself going back to him again kind of a renewal of my vows towards him and that and and uh, sure. so i think it's these things even within our own hearts and souls that the, uh, there's a rise and fall in of fashions and he, that he has a superb command of language though i mean his language is just it has this sort of um chiseled quality that it's almost like reading a monument you know something that's monumentally been carved and you couldn't change a single <laughs> word in it it's just beautiful the, the language he uses he does give you a terrifying aura of perfection, all right, and, and <laughs> yeah. almost more than any short story. David, I'm going to move on. Sure, yes. uh, I want to talk to, hello, Tanya, how are you? Great, Hi, great Mike. To, great, great to have you here with us. Uh, and um, thank you to, thank you for, it, we sat down about over a month, six weeks ago and thought about what we would like to do with this, with uh, with this, with these three events that were coming up and, and um, 
these these three things they were all your own ideas and that congratulations and it's a brilliant fulfillment of of the kind of I suppose public remit that's part of your job mm -hmm. as a as a as a as the writer in residence on that we should also say as well and I don't know if he's out there that um, this is a night for Arlen House yeah uh, and this is a night for Arlen House and I don't know if Mr Alan Hayes is out there he is the one man he is the one man kind of powerhouse behind uh, behind um Arlen House and there's no greater more passionate devotee of Irish literature, uh, a maker of wonderful books, and even as uh, even actually as as the the as Tanya has pointed out to me, the cover mm -hmm. of your of her own book is he's a great devotee to Alan's a great devotee to even contemporary Irish art, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Tanya, the collect the, the cover of your book there is a continuance of your last uh, your last your last collection. And yeah, that's that, that, that's right, Mike. Yeah, it's a, an artist from Belfast, David Sweet, uh, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting at our first live launch uh, for the books up in Belfast uh, in the Irish Secretariat. I hadn't met David Sweet before. We'd only communicated via emails and that um, to talk about using his paintings. So it was lovely, actually, that he was able to come along to the Belfast launch and, and to meet him in person. Yeah, because you 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 and you had that you could have gone any and you could have moved away from the from the the, the kind of imagery and you could have away, moved away from I suppose the the visual mm -hmm. imagery and the, the of your last book, but you didn't. You kept with it, even the same kind of palette of colors and everything in that. Yeah. That that, that uh, what was it? That that's a deliberate aesthetic. That's a deliberate it, aesthetic yeah, choice, it, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, you were talking to Rosemary there earlier about, you know, has she moved on in terms of her, her short story collections, maybe and the type of short stories that she writes. And I feel that my two collections, I guess there hasn't been as much time between them. And, um, you know, they're probably quite similar in tone, actually. And, and I felt that the artwork made them sit very well together as, as two companion pieces as well. Yeah, and I think they definitely do. Um, and Tanya, you you are you're you're a thriller writer. You've worked in in two long form, mm -hmm. uh, two long form thrillers and everything. And here you come with your second collection of short stories. Um, how do you divide your headspace? And I know you're working on a novel at, at the moment as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, um, a, a, a really intriguing project that I'm, I'm not going to talk about on that but um <laughs> I always you've spoken about it to me and I found it find it hugely intriguing um how do you find the headspace for I, I, I'm I'm more interested as I go on and how do I find the headspace because people ask me to write short stories or write novels how do I go for it you know which which do I sit down to as the time passes how, how does it work for you yeah, well, I, I tend to concentrate on one or the other, Mike. Um, unlike David, who I know switches between the, the forms and the genres, um, I, I'm not really good at doing that. I think, you know, once I'm, I'm concentrating on one project, I have to fully immerse myself in that project and I can't really work on anything else. Um, so if I'm in that headspace for working on short stories, that's where I'm at you know I, I'll focus on the stories if I'm writing a novel I don't write stories at all yeah so it's, a, it's either yeah. one, or, one or the other with it's, you, it's yeah. one or the other would be yeah yeah definitely and so the this collection nobody needs to know how mm -hmm. long what's the genesis of it how long or how long um, or, short, or short was it in the building of it about 
two years, Mike, I would say, um, because that came out, uh, well, when Black Dog Sing came out in 2016, and so did The Girl Behind the Lens, my first novel, um, which was quite an unusual experience in that it was two different publishers and there was only six weeks um, between the publications. So it was very odd. <laughs> you know, you wait years to be published and suddenly there's, there's two books out at practically the same time. Um, then the next book was another novel, as you say, Mike, When Your Eyes Closed, and that came out in November 2019. Um, so there are three stories, I think, in Nobody Needs to Know, which um, I had written uh, before I wrote the last novel, but everything else was after that novel came out. Yeah. So pretty much two years. Yeah. Is, is it... Um, when you find... When you're... When you find your, when you dedicate yourself, uh, Tanya, to the the, when you dedicate yourself and, and set your mind space in that in that short story writing place, does everything then present begin to present itself to you within the narrow structure of a of a short story, or do you have to kind of discipline material and um, mm. stop material from ballooning out all over the place, or or is it? no you're thinking it it doesn't definitely doesn't balloon out Mike no I think when I when I you know I know that it's a short story that I'm going to write you know um I I suppose the only thing I would say is since I've written the novels I've noticed my short stories getting longer um whereas a lot of them would have come in in the first collection around the 2000 words I find myself kind of going to 4,000, maybe 5,000 words in some of the stories in, in the new collection. Um, so definitely, I suppose the form has changed a little bit for me since I've written the long form fiction. Yeah. I, I really don't know if it's connected, but I think it must be. I, I, yeah, I, I, won't, I wonder about that myself. I, hmm. I've seen in, in the past writers' second collections becoming, the stories becoming longer and longer as 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 even writers progress through their through their their different collections it's something we can ask rosemary about she's four or five collections mm -hmm. deep so I'd be very interested to see whether whether the stories in our fifth collection are on average you know longer or shorter than the one, ones in, in in her early one you said there that that this was about about two years in the making and that yeah. so so this means that some of this book was written during covid time and and that yeah. it, the, and did do you think that COVID is many things, but was was is COVID hospital was it hospitable to the short story, the world? It, it was hospitable to my writing in general, I think, Mike. Um, and I suppose a few things happened around the same time. I mean, I was appointed writer in residence in NUI Galway in, in January. So, you know, we were we were in the middle of COVID. Um and then obviously the residency allowed me the time to focus on my writing. Um, and I've got 50,000 words of that novel in progress written during COVID. Um, and yeah, I just, I felt, I suppose, because I do a lot of teaching and I do a lot of traveling to teach. So all that travel time, all that commuting time was cut out um, yeah. because everything went on Zoom. So it, it just, you know, between that and, and having the residency, it gave me a, a lot more time to concentrate on writing. So, you know, instead of heading off somewhere in the morning to, to work or whatever, I was just going into, you know, the office here at home and spending the morning writing until lunchtime. Um, so for me, it's been a really productive time, actually, during lockdown.
I'm so envious. Uh. <laughs> right, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've, I've heard writers say different things, like some people have said the same as me, you know, that they got a lot done. Others were saying they just weren't in the right headspace at all to do anything, even concentrating on reading, in fact. Yeah, yeah, that's mm. true. Did it lend itself thematically to any of, did COVID lend itself to uh, thematically to any of the pieces in the collection? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so, Mike. I mean, there's one story, I suppose, in the collection, which is one of the later ones that I wrote, which is called Bat Ears and Fifi. And that is about a woman, I suppose, who um, in her neuroticism sort of barricades herself in. <laughs> so I don't know if COVID maybe uh, was of any influence there. Um, but but I, I don't think so. You know, I certainly don't want to to go writing a, you know, a collection based in COVID times or even a novel, or I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have any interest in doing that. <laughs> I think there's, I think there's this kind of, as, 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 as Rosemary would, 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 would probably acknowledge that there's always these external pressures on us to kind of respond to and to mine certain themes and that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, I think probably COVID is one of those themes that will, people will start folding their arms and go well where's your COVID book and where's your <laughs> where's your COVID collection and that you, you're supposed to be a writer illumine this for us yeah yeah and how, do you think it'll take us a while to metabolize it I think it always does you know um yeah I, I mean we're not in the right place to read that sort of material I think at the moment we're still living through it it's not finished you know and I think maybe it, yeah it could be interesting and, and certainly I'd be a big fan of social commentary and fiction definitely so yes it could be something you know in 10 or 20 years time but not right now <laughs> yeah thanks uh, Tanya I, I'm going to come back to some of that again but I want to go back to start back at the beginning again at, at Rosemary uh, Rosemary uh, you, you 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 poked a hornet's nest there recently with with uh, with an article that that uh, and I think you you're you're an article in which you you urged uh, it seems to me or that you spoke that that writers should respond to a multiplicity of things and respond to a whole broad genre of possibility rather than succumbing to outside pressure to mine a particular scene. And it seems to, and we're, we're speaking specifically about uh, writing coming out of Northern Ireland, focusing on uh, Northern Ireland as a post-Brexit, post-Good Friday community and that. And um, you responded that, well, we should do, not just do that, but do it, do it and do a load more as well. Uh, and um, it became a very, uh, became a contentious, a contentious thesis, Rosemary. So it did. Uh, yeah, Mike, I, I mean, I hit it pretty hard because I had a sort of strong point to make. And, but I didn't actually probably contemplate that there would be so, such a big backlash reaction about, you know, the troubles is so important and people were so passionate about this is what we, we, we are still going through and processing and the trauma of that. So um, yeah, it took it took me by surprise because I, I think I was more urging really that you know there's so much right now with NI protocol and Brexit. As I said, all these things going on that we kind of it's a very easy default to look back at the past without really confronting the present. Sometimes I think, and I do think there's the external pressures, as I say, and 
uh, publishers right now and uh, are wanting more about the trouble. So it's, you know, these things are cyclical. Say five, 10 years ago, nobody wanted that, but it is a, a cycle. But yeah, I suppose, yeah, it was good. It was good to stir debate, you know, with this, but I, certainly it took me by surprise. Yeah, uh, the strength of feeling behind it, yeah. Yeah, it did become, an, and it's good. It's good. It's good, as you say, and pointed out that it was published in Fortnite magazine, which is exactly the sort of place that kind of has a meeting of culture and politics and uh, and all of that coming together. And that, and uh, congratulations on actually poking and stirring a debate. And that it's it's it's. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was a, a a very fine article and a very very interesting very interesting idea. Rosemary, will you read? I'd, I'd love to. I'm going to go around and and uh, and have. A, I'd love to hear each of our, our readers read. You know, for five to ten minutes from our from your your books and your collections, folks. I, I forgot to say that um, if you would like to put in a question, uh, we will we will uh, have questions after this. I see that are, if you put them into the Q and A rather than into the chat, uh, we would appreciate that. So thank you very much. So Rosemary, you want to read here? Yeah? Great. Yeah, I'm going to read from the very first short story in this collection, which is uh, the A, B's and C's of modern living. Um, poor David and Tanya have been listening to this all on our book launch tour, but uh, it's one of my favourites, so I'll give it a lash. Um, it was one of those warm, grey summer evenings when my taxi turned off the Malone Road into a leafy lane. The actual house was pretty hideous all reinforced concrete with dark bulletproof windows, a relic from the troubles. I shook the hand of the secretary, scored a beer and a fancy glass and went through to the garden. The grass was beautifully manicured and overlooked by giant beech trees on the hillside. The garden was also sprouting journalists, politicians, CEOs, Twitterati and community leaders, the latter including quite a few reformed paramilitaries. I spotted another artist being swooned over by a couple of women, but I didn't join him. I rarely got swooned over, which wasn't down to me so much as to the simple fact that men were less sapiosexual than women. Instead, I downed my beer, refilled it and threw myself into the mix. I sidled over to a comedian I knew from TV who was standing on his own. He had a really bright red nose, so I guessed he liked a good drink. It was bulbous too, like a clown's. All these journos and politicos, I said, I wonder why we were invited. Because we are people of influence. Under the influence, I laughed, tilting my glass. He didn't even smile. A woman came up and hugged him. I knew her face from Twitter and she knew of me too. Talking of which, she said, getting on her phone, let's do a post. Great, I said, flicking my hair back. The gallery owners were always telling me to be more prominent on social media. You take it, she said, handing me her phone. Disgruntedly, I snapped her and the comedian, cozying up, raising their beer glasses, then headed straight for another refill. Next, I wandered over to the smokers. The Green Party leader was smoking her head off and sucking on a beer bottle. Ah, straight from the bottle, I said. Yeah, cuts out the washing up more ecological. Right. No, it's just because I'm Italian, she laughed. I liked her. A glossy business exec called me over to her table. Hey, Cora, tell everyone the story of you and me at Stormont. 
Storm? My mind panicked. We'd been guest speakers of the lineup installment, but there was no story. Fortunately, she couldn't bear to lose the limelight for one second and swept on with, smokers are the coolest people, aren't they, Cora? They so are, I agreed. If you're not afraid to die, you're not afraid to live. She offered me a slim white cigarette from a flashy gold case, but frankly, I was much too afraid to die. I ambled off for another refill, chatting to an ex-rugby star on the way. The canapes were doing the rounds, but I was far too busy chatting to partake. Soon I kept asking people their names again, getting names wrong, ending up with business cards I would lose later. After another beer, I offered to join up a top diplomat's freckles with a pen. Around me, the dusk was blowing through the garden and the guests were thinning out. I finished my drink and phoned a taxi. And this is, uh, I'm just gonna swap, jump to later, later in the evening. Connell Parr lived up to his name. He did have power. It struck me that Connell talked fast because of his childhood stammer, and he liked to have sex that way too. Funnily enough, he reminded me of a stallion I was once on that only had two speeds, trot and gallop. The stallion didn't know how to counter and burst into such a gallop I nearly broke my neck on a branch. Breakneck sex, I kept thinking to myself. I felt that I had an insight into Connell's being, his soul, his DNA. My female friends often said of the man they slept with, he's just a shag. But the truth was no man was just a shag. And they were all so different. And if Eve tasted the apple in the Garden of Eden, I wanted to taste every type of apple in that garden too. Ambrosia, Winesap, Red Love, Cox's Pippin, Russet, Brayburn, Bramley, Angel, Bites, strawberry cheeks, bloody butchers, Irish peaches, foxes, whelps. He continued to go in and out fast, bucking like a bronco that couldn't get a phantom rider off his back, foaming inside me with a pumped up purple rage, leaving me raw and swollen. We must have been shaking the wall hard as a guitar fell down on top of us, the one that cost £4,000. And he pulled out, leapt off me and laid it reverentially on the ground. Clearly, he had to be made of wood to be treated softly. I sucked him for a while as he bunched the back of my hair with his fingers to the same rhythm. Again, he steered my ha his hand over to his balls and moved my legs apart with the dexterity of a puppet master. This time, the fire had gone out and we returned thirstily to our last sips of beer. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> um, that 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 glances off one of your own definitions of of uh, of what writing a story was like. You said it was like having sex with a stranger in the dark. I think was one of, was one of your definitions of of, of story yeah. writing. Because you're always trying to give the reader a thrill, you know. So that's what it is. But you don't really know where you're going and how it's going to work out in the dark. So you're feeling your way around. So I think it's an opposite quote. I think it worked well enough there, all right. Yeah, I think you're fine. <laughs> David, um, you said something really, really interesting uh, in, in, uh, in a recent piece you wrote about, about where your stories come in. You talked about how your stories come in almost after a crisis, uh, that, that, they, that they, begin after, they begin after floods, they begin after car crashes and accidents and things like that. 
Um, that sounds that sounds almost um, counterintuitive to to what people would believe in the short the short story to be about. Yeah, it, it, it's something that came to me through teaching the novel. And when I was teaching the novel, the structure of the novel, and I was looking at novel openings, I then went back to look at drama openings and film openings, and it struck me that we're wrong to think that the normal pattern is you set up the status quo and then somewhere in act one, you introduce a change. Like if you look at pretty much every single Shakespeare play, when the curtain goes up, the crisis has already happened. Like Othello has already eloped with Desdemona and married her secretly. And the Turks are already invading Cyprus. Yeah. And we just find out about that. Hamlet's father has already been killed by Claudius. He's married the mother and he has been dispossessed. Lear is in the process of abdicating. So the curtain goes up on something that's already happening or already underway. And what I say in the novel is that you begin with the crisis before you even meet the protagonists, you know? And I'm not talking about the thriller. I'm, I'm talking about like the famous opening of um, Pride and Prejudice. We find out that you know, rich eligible bachelors have moved into Netherfield Park because Mr. Bennett says it, says it to his lady. We don't know who the Bennets are or where they live, but we yeah. know what the problem of the play is. The status quo has been overturned. Now we're going to get the response to that. Yeah. Same is true of Anna Karenina begins with um, the Oblonsky household is in turmoil. That's the opening line. Or Joseph K is arrested. We've no idea who he is, but the situation is he's arrested. So you That's start right. with the disruption, I think, in almost all these. You start with the shark attack in Jaws. We don't know where we are, but there's a shark attack. Then we meet the people who might have to deal with that problem. And we're interested in them after we're interested in the problem. There's going to be a war between the Corleones and one other gang because the other gang wants to bring in drugs. Okay, who are the family? And very often the pregnancy is a person who's least capable or least equipped to deal with that and that's what makes it fascinating and it struck me i don't plan this but when i was looking through the stories of this collection it tends to be the case it tends to be the case that if what i'm looking at is a situation has altered and therefore how is somebody going to respond to that how is somebody going to take on that challenge you know or again like uh, when the curtain goes up on julius caesar there's already a conspiracy underway Cassius is trying to convince Brutus to join it because he Julius Caesar has already been offered the crown three times. It's already happened. Uh, and I think, and, and this is true of Greek drama. This is how stories have always been told. So it's certainly not unique to the short story. Yeah. And as I say, Mike, it's not how I plan them. Yeah. As I was looking through these, it's almost always the case that an event, and it could be the arrival of a letter or a stranger or a house flooding, as you said, or whatever it is. Very often it has just happened. Not always, but often, you know. That's a, the, that, that was a, a gorgeous tour there of Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 will, I will remember that. Uh, listen, can you read a, read a few pages for us? We'd love to hear. Oh, yeah, your, I'll, I'll probably pick the one story where this doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said, the shortest story in this comes in under a thousand words, so I think I'll be able to get that in in about six or seven minutes. So yeah, brilliant. That would be great. <clears throat> it's entitled Rain Mongrel. No one could say when he'd come in. Oh, there we go. Right. So the guy's already come in. You see, <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
Peace has proved. QED. No one can say when he'd come in, when precisely he'd ensconced himself in the corner behind the cigarette machine. They became aware of him vaguely only after the last of the featured readers. Hair matted, beard unkempt, an anorak torn and dirty as though much slept in. There was to be a 10 minute break before the open mic. Lorraine gravitated towards the table about which some of the pulse crowd were clustered. The final featured poet back now in their number. She supposed it was a good thing to see them here. Mark maintained they were too much of a clique to show up unless to support one of their own. Is she any good? Lorraine had asked. Not my cup of tea. So why invite her? Precisely because, my dear, that crowd will only show up to hear one of their own. He'd been trying for months to get into their zine. Lorraine wasn't convinced, but then the spoken word was Mark's gig. Only the open mic part of the evening was her charge. She'd finally managed to coax a weary, oh, go on then, out of Katrina Coffee, the gawky, provocatively pregnant figure with hair part shaved who edited the zine. When she felt the man's presence behind her, perhaps it was the round of supercilious eyebrows that altered her. <coughs> I have a piece for you. It was a low, embittered voice, thickened with phlegm. It well befitted the weather cudgel face that met her when she turned. I'm sorry, she smiled. I've a piece for you. His head flinched in such a manner as the director gazed down towards the gaping pocket. When she shook her head, not quite following, his fingers, shaking and filthy, drew out a roll of scribbled papers. The flesh about his eyes was so pouched and battered that it gave the disquieting impression he was looking out at her from behind a mask. Do I know you? she wondered. And she must have spoken it because she heard him ask, I don't know, do you? Well, she said, we'll see. And then catching or imagining a round of smug exchanges at the table behind. Yes, she declared. Why not? Is it long? Couple of pages is all. Great. We'll put you third up after the break, uh, she prompted. He chose not to supply a name, merely nodded and repeated back behind the cigarette machine. <clears throat> the audience had thinned so that there were few in the bar beyond an odd straggler and a scattering of open mic regulars. It annoyed Lorraine that the Pulse crowd had departed the instant Katrina Coffey had recited her performance piece. She tried to fix a told you so grimace on Mark, but he was busy busying himself with whatever it was Mark always found to busy himself with. <clears throat> she consulted her list. Next up we have, she began, and it was as though her nod in the direction of the cigarette machine had drawn the figure in the anorak from behind it. He refused the microphone. He drew a hand once through his matted hair, looked at each of the few who'd stayed on, then turned his gaze directly to Lorraine and without consulting the pages, he began. Have you walked the streets, the inner city streets on any evening, dirty like this one when the rain mongrel is down from the hills, how she brushes her wet fell against all the stippled brick and concrete until the air is thick with molting? Pavements wet and glistening, neon stained. Traffic sluicing water over asphalt and gutters swollen with their dull monotony of swallowing. Even the rivers, brown and bloated, pushing through the legs, the low arches, the bearded river gods. 
the back of the halfpenny bridge a cat arched and people have you seen people pushing pulsing over bridges huddled past up mary henry grafton hunched up white faces tilted forwards ill with haste ill with are stuck like wet pep petals to the inside of sweating cafe windows and how the rain mongrel turns low and hunkers under her weight of hair with night coming in early from the east then choosing one anemic face out of the pushing crowd how stepping out you shadow the impatient walk over echoing pavement to step clack <coughs> heel clack her umbrella a broken blackbird's wing the footfall echoing longer as she pushes up through emptying streets away from taillights herding early homeward along the south quay towards the dark lit park up instead up up beyond parnell's obelisk and the dull rotunda he stopped will i go on he said no trace of a question the eyes unflinching behind a puffy pugilist's mask lorraine looked to mark even across the dim bar his expression was as clear as a semaphore it flashed who the hell is this clown? She swallowed coin tasting saliva, a hammering, fisting her throat. Go on, she nodded. Two shadows, faint, fainter, like second hands. One darkens, lightens, then another revolves, then start again at the next lamppost, a slow swing at her feet, and her shadows too, clock facing, she's heard. Stop dead. No, it's it's the stocking sagged. She teases over calf, and you catch her squinting softly, squinting into the rain. She rises, stamps twice, and almost looks back, steps out again into tangible air, fine-haired, where the rain mongrel has curled over the city and will not stir again now before light. Up past Mary's, the black church stuck out in the road. An island spitting the stream of the road and see she crosses over turns up into a street of little low houses not trying to look like you're in a hurry not trying to look a street of huddled bungalows and at the corner did you almost run afraid she might be already gone and squinting through the drizzle not sure not sure you saw which house for certain but what you did here was the click of the front door clear as a shot man david thank you david how long how old is that story david uh well <clears throat> it's a bit of a long story in that that the rain mongrel that the guy recites in that ah, was a crazy. quarter was a quarter of a story that won the maria edgeworth back in 2003 and that it set aside and then I, I took that part out and gave it into the voice of the, the down and out. Yeah. And with, with the implication that he had actually followed the Gerald running it one night as a separate story. Uh, it was in the Lonely Crowd, I think, three years ago, ago maybe. So, so it's, man, it's a lot it, more recent. And is, it, is, there, is there much of a temptation to rewrite, you know, the, the story when, when it first appeared in a magazine to now it's finished, it's it? Is there, is there much of, a, much of a, an inclination to rewrite? Uh, I try not to if I can. Um, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I 
felt that a figure like Derek Mahan almost invariably made his poetry weaker each time he went back to revise it. And he was a compulsive reviser. And with my poetry or with my sto short stories, I think the temptation is always to go back and, you know, to sort of touch it up and alter it. Not necessarily because you're better now, but because you see things differently now. Yeah. And to that extent, you'll, you'll change what is a record of where you were at that time. Yeah. So to that extent, I try to avoid. There's a story of, was it uh, Bonnard, the artist, being thrown out of the Louvre at the age of 85? Because he was touching up one of his paintings. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be like that. Uh, and although although there is so, some of us have that temptation and that. Oh, the temptation is there certainly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Tanya, how are you? Um, Tanya, do you succumb to that temptation, or do you do you leave it as it is? Yes and no. I mean, I, I rewrite as I go. You know, I, I've talked about this in, in terms of drafting, and you know, some people scribble out a draft and then they go back and they write draft after draft. Whereas I, when I'm writing a short story, I, I would have a very different style to when I'm writing a novel. Because um, the novel, you do just have to get the story out there and then go back. But with the short story, I try to get the sentences and the paragraphs as perfect as I can as I go yeah. along, you know. So I would start off um, each writing day when I'm writing a story, reading what I had written the previous day. Um, and, and seeing if it's as good as it can possibly be before moving on in the story. Uh, but I think in terms of rewriting, you're never really finished, Mike, because, you know, I found myself in situations where I might be reading a story in public and I may change a word here and there. <laughs> you're laughing. You've obviously done it yourself. But you know. You, 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 <laughs> I, I find myself I, I read what should be should be there rather than yeah. what is there yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so there's always that temptation you know even doing public readings you're still editing your work I uh, would love to hear we'd love to hear you read uh, Tanya um re re read the definitive version for us there <laughs> i'll read what's on the page yeah <laughs> um i had an article published in the irish times today mike and it was about truth and fiction um because i always say i think all good fiction has some kind of an element of truth whether it's a personal truth or whether it's someone else's truth that you kind of take on board and and put yourself in that person's shoes and, and have empathy for them. Um, but the story I'm going to read, I, I did talk about in the article because it is quite a personal truth. And it was it was based on a, quite a traumatic um, experience that myself and David had of a, a neighbor who was living in our apartment block here who had a, a bit of a, a breakdown, uh, but became quite aggressive and started making all sorts of threats. Uh, towards us and so yeah. this is um, where the inspiration from this story came from so it's called Ding Dong Johnny you know you could die in this place Ding Dong Johnny could take an axe to that door bash both her heads in and not one neighbour would fucking hear it had been going on for at least half an hour intermittent roars starting off sing-song like only to convert in seconds to a bellowing crescendo. A quarter past bloody one, Roz said, throwing the covers back and swinging her bare legs onto the floor. What are you doing? You're not going out to him. Damn right I'm not, she said, pulling on her robe. I'm ringing the guards as what. Ding dong, Johnny, Johnny, what's it? Ding dong day. 
the, strict, the strange nursery rhyme accompanied Roz's form out the door. I sat up and turned on the bedside lamp. Turn it off, she hissed. We don't want him knowing we're here. Ding dong, Johnny, Johnny. The voice was getting louder, brasher. It felt like he was in the goddamn spare room. I opened the door to make sure he wasn't. Was relieved to see the usual mess. Safe. I pulled on a t-shirt and followed Roz into the front room. Yeah, look, I'm ringing about a neighbour. He's been shouting non-stop for the past hour. Sounds like he's having some kind of a meltdown. I don't know, some weird nursery rhyme. Then he starts into this string of obscenities. Listen, you'll hear him yourself if I go out to the hall. We sat in the dark and waited for them to come. What the hell is he saying anyway? I said. Scrunch of tires on gravel had us out of our seats. Fair play, Roz whispered, ducking the headlights on the wall. That was fast. I went into the hall, waited for the buzzer to go. Do you hear that? I whispered to the uniformed pair in the porch. Ding dong Johnny was going at full volume. The reply was running steps on the stairs outside, a bang on the door opposite and all went quiet. Roz and I jostled for space like players in a rugby scrum, ears fixed against the door. Tommy, are you all right in there? Silence. Are you all right, Tommy? We heard shouting. The door opened. What do you want? In the voice, not a trace of the hysterics of the moment before. I didn't call you. Did someone call you? A struggle as Roz and I tussled for the lock. Don't, I whispered, but she threw my hand off and flung open the door. Yeah, she said, I called. You've been screaming in there for nearly an hour. Have you any idea what time it is? Roz, hot-headed Roz. I pulled the door open to stand behind her, all five foot nothing of her ready for combat. It's true, I said. You were shouting, Tommy, some nursery rhyme. The guards waited, patient. Tommy loomed in his doorframe, swollen belly protruding from under a stained vest. I've no idea what these two are talking about, he said, measuring us with albino eyes. He stepped forward, wagged a finger at me. The smell of piss and stale sweat nearly made me gag. I could have you charged, he said, for harassment. Now, Tommy, there's no need for that. These people were just concerned about you, that's all. I heard you myself from out in the street. The guard's voice, soft, cajoling. Listen, do you want me to call someone? What for, he said, then pausing. I could call a solicitor. This is an infringement on my rights. I know the law, you know, don't think I don't. Ah, I don't think there's any need for that, Tommy. So long as you're all right. That's all anyone's concerned about. The male guard this time. I'd say he'd taken one look at Tommy and was sorry he was the one got the call. I'm getting some sleep. That's what concerns me, said Roz. Some of us have to get up in the morning. The male guard sighed. Right, well, if it's not for trouble. I pulled Roz inside the door and closed it, lest we were left facing Tommy while the other two belted it down the stairs. I was no coward, but Tommy O'Keefe was over six feet tall and could have been a rugby player in his day. The slack belly didn't take away from the strength in those shovel-like hands. And to find myself backed into a corner with him looming over me was, to say the least, the stuff of nightmares. He'd been living next door for a while, 
Certainly he'd been there before Roz moved in two years before. And insofar as we could, we both avoided them. We exchanged looks when we heard him coming up the stairs with his shopping, shouting in frustration if something happened to tumble from one of his bags and onto the floor while he fumbled his key in the space between his apartment and ours. Most of the time he spent outside in the complex car park. He marched up and down in a high visibility vest with nothing underneath, threatening any of the day trippers brave or stupid enough to try to get free parking when the seafront was jammed. Personally, I'd have circled the area 10 times rather than have his red face roaring into mine. Sometimes he'd sit sentry on the wall outside, eating a sandwich or a 99 from one of the kiosks over the street. It dripping down his front as he watched and waited, a troll blocking the main entrance to the building. I'll leave it there, Mike. Thank you so much, Tanya. Um, I think we're going to have to move on because I see that we have a couple of questions in our in our chat bar here, and I see that that there's a question in there from from a, a, an Oliver Peter, um, and he asks um, he asks David specifically, but I'd I'd like to hear Rosemary on this question as well. How does Mr. Butler divide his head his headspace or his head place between projects? Um, Rosemary, actually, could you start with that? Because we haven't heard from you in a while. You're a you're a playwright, and a you're a playwright and a short story writer. How it, can you work on both things at the same time, or is it one or the other? As 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 Tanya has said. Yeah, I I can really. I think you have to actually because sometimes with plays, uh, when you're in rehearsal process and things, you actually have to uh, work on them at certain times. Um, so yeah, I think. I, I say particularly what David said, of course, if it's monologue and you're doing a, a voiced first person story, I mean, it's incredibly close. There's really hardly any difference. So, um, uh, but yeah, also I think, I think it's easy for me to go between plays and short stories also because I do a lot of dialogue in mine short stories as well. So. Yeah, so they probably inform each other. And the one thing about a play also is it's like a glimpse, it's a glance. Each scene is, you don't tell everything and that's a very short story. It's not discursive like a, a novel. So it's the brevity is very, so they're similar art forms. And, and thank you, uh, Rosemary. D David, your own, your, your head divided between novels and plays and <coughs> short stories uh, and uh, and poetry. Do, 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 do you get any peace at all from yourself? <laughs> <laughs> from the um, most things that happen, uh, happen in the small hours of insomnia with me. And most things begin with voice. Um, even poetry will begin with playing with words, playing with language, playing with the sound of the sound of images as much as the visual of images. Um, a dramatic monologue or a short story might begin with a person's voice and what they might sound like and what they might be saying and the, and, and the rhythm of how they speak. Um, what often happens in my actual writing practice is that a project I'm engaged on, uh, such as a novel, might get stuck and I might wonder would certain sections work possibly as a one act play or as a short story separately and I might play with it um, in that genre. So for instance, there's a work in progress that I'm still working on at the moment uh, under the sign of the goat, but a section of that I rewrote as a one act play, Blue Love, which uh, 
which we toured around Ireland, but it, also, it, it won a competition in Cork and it, it was shortlisted over in London. So other companies put it on and it was a chance for me to see it in action. And then I was, I'm still able to think about what I learned from that process to, bit, to bring back to the novel, which is yeah. telling the same story. So I find them very interchangeable is the wrong word, but it, it may be worth if you're blocked in one project, giving the same concerns or the same story or even the same characters a push in a different genre just to see if that will loosen it up. Yeah, good one. Um, there's a question here for for you, Tanya, uh, by, from Catherine Deegan. She wants mm -hmm. to know how, the, between how do you have headspace for teaching and writing uh, at the same time? Scheduling is scheduling and time management uh, important to you? I know that you made I know yeah. that you made great use of commuting. I did, yeah, I did. We've we've talked about that before, Mike. Yeah, because I used to to work in an English language school for a very long time in the in the mornings, and I'd have the commute into Dublin from Bray, and uh, I would write on the train on the way into work, and the commute was about forty five or fifty minutes. And I just felt I had to make the most of that time. Um, it may be the only time that I, I got to write, you know. Um, certainly, it, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of juggling involved. Um, I was just having this conversation with the poet John W. Sexton the other evening. I met him at an event and he said he sometimes gets up in the middle of the night and writes for an hour because it might be the only time he can find uh, during the day to fit it in. But I think um, for me, I absolutely love teaching creative writing I'm extremely passionate about it and I, I never tire of discussing all the aspects of, of writing fiction and I think that helps in, in many ways it's, it's not like I'm doing a job that's that's pure drudgery for me you know um, and and it doesn't drain my creativity talking about it either it actually gets me fired up I think when I'm talking to other people about writing so you know the two very much do go hand in hand um, you have to be very careful, though, to get the balance right, because if you do end up doing too much teaching, you find yourself, you know, spending 90 percent of your time reading other people's work and, and commenting on it. Um, and very quickly, you'll find yourself with no time to write. Um, so time management is hugely important. Uh, but I do love the job that I do teaching creative writing. Yeah, good, good one. Um, one of our one of our questioners there has made a really interesting observation that the short story either concerns itself with now, the present, the recent past, and possibly even the future in that, but seldom with the kind of historical past. And we seem to give no, we seem to have no kind of get no encouragement to do that, or 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 there doesn't seem to be any willingness on the part of journals or competitions to recognize this aspect of, of the short story um do you have any uh, do you have any thoughts on that tanya sorry mike i wasn't expecting you to come back to me straight away there so I, i'm gonna let one of the others go first on that your your your, your face was full screen there so that's why i read it rosemary let's I'll go back to you seeing as you 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 are historically inclined uh with the 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 absence of the historical short story seems to be what, what's uh, what's uh, what's um, intriguing our, our questioner. Yeah, um, I guess it is, it is an absence. Yeah, uh, there are some. I mean, Martina Devlin, I know, did some uh, uh, a short story uh, or well, a collection of different women 
uh, through history. So, uh, you know, it can be, it, they're out there, those collections. I think Mary O'Donnell did Empire. Was that not a short story collection? Yeah, and there the was past. So Actually, yeah. there isn't, I don't think, believe there is a huge lack, and I do believe it can be done. I mean, I mean, me personally, with short stories, I use maybe the past intercut with present, you know, because yes. Northern Ireland is one of those sort of continuing, uh, continuing struggles that kind of is still relevant to today, but so I, I don't personally, but um, they're out there. Yeah, I, I don't don't personally know that much about it myself. D David, has, uh, have you encountered many of these, these things? My, my hunch on that is a very interesting question. And um, my hunch is that if you look at historical fiction and say fantasy, where the reader wants to enjoy a world being built and described, the short story won't necessarily be where that reader will want to look for it. Yeah. If you see what I mean? Um, so for example, I don't know. I mean, I, I can imagine reading the historical fiction. I, I've read plenty, like something along the lines of Wolf Hall or whatever it is. There's a big investment of, of imagination on both the author's part and the reader's part. And I could imagine it working as a short story collection of interconnected short stories where that investment is going to carry over into another story, into another story that both the author and the reader have put the, the time into building and creating a feel for this world and its languages and its smells and its touch and, and its power structures and all those sort of things. I think, I think a short story publisher would be worried that possibly the readership of the short story is not the same as the readership of historical fiction. I'm guessing that, you know. Yeah, I think that you touched on something there that I, that I find I find interesting is that um, is that there is out there at the moment there is a genre that lies between a connection of short stories and a novel. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. You know, I, and, I, 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 I'm extremely interested in this, Mike. I have to say, I, I've, I've noticed a lot of it, particularly people like um, Elizabeth Strout. Like Olive Kitteridge is really a collection of short stories. Yeah, she may or may not be the protagonist in some of them. She wrote anything as possible, uh, William. Yeah. And I think part of that is that there is so little chance of a short story collection winning a prize that marketing is asking that linked short story collections may be called a novel. Yeah. I mean, they've always existed going all the way back to Winesburg, yeah. Ohio, and even, you know, Thomas Hardy or Faulkner or Marquez have always written linked short stories, but they're, they're now being marketed as novels, I think, so that they can be entered into novel competitions like the Booker or the Pulitzer or whatever. Yeah. Um, not in a cynical way, perhaps, because I also think that the readership, <laughs> again, has to do with the investment. If you read... Um, some one of these connected short story collections like um last resort by Jane carson or summer water by sarah moss madeline darcy has one out now as well liberty terrace you can invest and then put it aside for two weeks and then invest and each time you're investing your 15 minutes that you have spare but it doesn't have the demand for continuous reading that it yeah. does so it seems to fit our lifestyles as well as a publishing model at the moment it's a fascinating yeah. area. It's one that I'm dabbling in as well. I think a lot of writers I know are. 
It really is. And, and there are, I, I remember talking to Keith Ridgway about Hawthorne and Child and that's, and, and he was saying, he was saying that, that he was, I, so I said to him, I said, uh, I said, Keith, I said, novel or book of short stories, which, which is it? And, and he said, I had a long discussion with my editor about this. And he says, do you know what we decided to call it? She said, we decided to call it a book and, that, and, and let the world have done with it. And that Rosemary it, it touched on, on on a subject there that that it, that uh, that you drew attention to um, uh, before before we came on air. And that is that while this might be a, a healthy moment and time and period for the short story, it's a real pity that there isn't a, a major dedicated prize given over to the to the to the short story. Yeah, it, uh, there is just the um, Edgehill Prize. Um, um, uh, in England, and that's uh, that's the only big uh, prize there was, the Frank O'Connor, and that's gone. Um, so I think that's another reason why David's saying that. Um, I just wanted to say that um, if I wrote a, a cross between a novel and a short story collection, I'd call it a shovel. So uh, I, I think there's a real market for shovels these days. Um, so, but no, yeah, so... <laughs> Oh, OK, I've lost it. Uh, ask, ask Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, the, the absence of a, the absence of a major prize out there, maybe something, something we should agitate for that someone. Will I think just... I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as Rosemary was mentioned, the Frank O'Connor there, I think that was that was brilliant, you know. Um, it's only I, I when, it was only when she pointed it out that it became really obvious, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know where it went or, or what happened. I think we were saying earlier that it stopped maybe in about 2015. And I, I know there are, you know, other prizes that include both um, novel and short story, uh, Kate O'Brien, for example. Um, but I, I think it would be nice definitely to, to have more prizes dedicated to the short story. Um, and just to go back to Cassie's question about historical fiction, I was I was thinking about that just while Rosemary and David were answering as well. And there really is an absence of historical fiction stories, um, as Cassie said, in contemporary journals. And I would love to see contemporary journals publish more of, of that. I was I was quite worried there when I was listening to David saying maybe publishers feel that readers of historical fiction wouldn't be um, necessarily readers of short stories because I've got a half a collection of historical fiction stories written as well. I actually thought I, I was going to get that book done before nobody needs to know. And, and interestingly, while I was really enjoying writing the historical fiction stories, I found myself getting slightly bogged down by having to research the time and the country that I was setting each story in because I had this idea that I'd write a collection of 10 or 12 short stories set in different European cities between the two world wars. And so it's something I'm definitely going to go back to now when I finish this novel. So I have two projects on the go. Um, but I, I do hope uh, those readers of historical novels, like um, Cassie mentioned Prague 1938, I see there by Dara Kavanagh, um, that they will be interested in, in reading short stories uh, in the same ilk as well. Yeah, I just, um, it's funny, I read a collection recently and it, it is a mix of historical and present day and I find it very difficult because it's such a big switch to go past it from is. present. You know, I mean, we're stop start with, with uh, short fiction anyway and I find that personally for me just quite difficult to get that head round. 
Yeah, that's why I didn't want to mix them in one collection, Rosemary, you know, because I, I could have, yeah. you know, could have done that. And I just thought they're just far, far too different, the, the contemporary ones with the historical. Well, there's just uh, one question I'm going to, to pass around to you and then we will we will uh, call it a night. Thank you so much for your generosity and brilliant readings and for your uh, just presence. Tanya, thanks a million for this wonderful idea of bringing this launch to the Moore uh, Centre. Um, and the question is this, what can writers just starting out learn by writing short stories that would be helpful to them in honing their craft? What is it that what is it that starting out writing a short story can teach you, writer? Tanya, Econ your, your, yeah. your face is now. <laughs> Economy of words, Mike, I would say, um, you know, as we know, in a short story, everything has to count. There's nothing superfluous that can be in the short story. Um, everything has to be relevant. And I think, you know, as somebody who, who started out writing short stories, I think I brought that or at least I hope I did to my to my novels that not a word is wasted, you know, that the, you, you're not going off on any tangents, that the writing is really, really tight and everything that's there is something that needs to be said. So for me, that would be it. It, it would be really honing that, that, that style and, 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 you know, just getting rid of all the fat that shouldn't be there, you know? Thank you. Rosemary, what, what can we learn as, as, as beginning writers from the short story? Yeah. Um... I suppose that it's just um, you can learn endings. I think the most important thing when you write is where you're leading to. And I think the short story is the ending is always to me everything because it's that you're teaching that one moment of light where everything that has been leading up, it just feels like the right ending. So I think I think that's that's the great thing about short stories you'll learn that and of course editing it teaches you editing as well but but the main thing is how to write a good ending i think that's really important short, short stories unlike novels are won or lost in the ending they they um that, yeah. uh, you can you, bringing a short story to a to a conclusion is, is a really difficult can be a really difficult proposition david Yourself, what would what would you what do you think we can learn? We can our, well, our, our young writers can learn from it. It's when you were talking about the beginner writer or the emerging writer. I think to that extent, one can think of the short story as being something along the lines of an apprentice piece, where it's short enough and small enough in size that one can experiment. So one could say, okay. I've told this in the third person, how would it be told in the first person? How would it be told in the first person of the antagonist rather than the protagonist? How would it be told in the present tense rather than the past tense? And you can actually, you actually have the, the time to, to try that out. It doesn't take that long to change a 2000 word story from past tense to present tense, from third person to first person to change the perspective. So to that extent, one can try out an awful lot of things. One can try out an awful lot of voices, an awful lot of use of language, um, and learn a lot from doing that. Whereas if one is embarked on a novel, you're not going to do that. <laughs> well, you can. I, I mean, famously, Dostoevsky had written 100 pages of Crime and Punishment as the first person confession. And he thought, no, it's not. No, I, I'm going to write it as a yeah. third person. Yeah. and you have to, to dump those you know so 
didn't, I didn't know that about Dostoevsky, um, uh, but yeah. Uh, the, similarly, Pride and Prejudice was originally written as a book of letters, uh, a novel of letters called First Impressions. And then she thought, no, no it's probably not going to work as a, as a epistolatory novel. But yeah. with the short story, you have a chance to play around a bit. I often, when, when I'm teaching the beginner groups, I give them the opening line of one of my stories, um, which is just um, something along the lines of the rain coming, sorry, the mist coming off the mountain was becoming rain. Otherwise, they never would have taken that lift. And I always say, okay, if we change that word they to we, what's the difference? You know what I mean? And, it, and I, I don't answer that question. I just toss it out there and our discussion comes. So for example, with they, they both might wind up dead. With we, at least one will survive. You know, there's tiny little things that you can do with a short story that you can actually see the result of, I suppose. And to that extent, it's a hugely useful um, apprentice piece, though it should never be thought of as that when, when, you're, when you're serious about writing, I suppose. I do, yeah, I, I take that point indeed. Uh, Mr. Carolyn Copland, uh, um, uh, Carolyn Copland has, said here folks just to say thank you i learned a lot tonight and congratulations to all three writers i'm looking forward to some great reads and i think on that note folks we will on that note of thanks and gratitude we will leave it thank you all so much uh, thank you all tanya david and rosemary best of luck with your collections tanya farley nobody needs to know Fugitive by David Butler and Marching Season by Rosemary Jenkinson. I hope the three collections fly for you folks and um, we look forward to hearing from you again uh, in another, another year or two with your next collections, your next plays, your next books of poetry and everything. Congratulations, thank you and good night. Thanks Mike. Bye bye. Thanks a million Mike. Um, I might just add actually Mike just before we go uh, that the third event in the series is happening on December the 8th and um, yeah. so that's next Wednesday and it's a creative non-fiction event where I will be back in the interviewing seat um, and I'll be interviewing Sophie White and Roisin Kybird so it's at the same time seven o'clock next Wednesday. That so promises that promises to be a great uh, a great event as well so folks take care thank you god bless